Tom Woods Show, episode 1633. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you have a website, don't let it be a lazy bum. Make that website carry its own weight. Monetize that baby. I've got a free over-the-shoulder video where I show you about a half dozen ways that I do that on my sites. Check it out at tomwoods.com slash monetize. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here. All right, I guess it is the virus again, but this time it's more a question of states versus the federal government, and that's a little bit, that mixes it up a little bit. It's not the same material over and over. And as somebody who wrote a book in 2010 called Nullification, well, I can't just not comment on what's going on with regard to this. I did have an episode about this maybe a couple of weeks ago where I reproduced my appearance on Pete Canonas's podcast where I appeared alongside Michael Bolden. But I want to look at what's been going on recently and uh, elaborate on that. And of course, that has to do with the question of who calls the shots when it comes to deciding whether states should so-called reopen again when certain restrictions on people's activity and, and commercial activity should be eased or removed. What's interesting about this is the way the, the two sides have shaken out because it's unusual, isn't it, that it would be mostly Democratic governors who are now trying to assert the powers of the states by indeed citing the 10th Amendment explicitly against the federal government. And you have Donald Trump, by contrast, saying that the power of the U.S. president in situations like this is total. And it has to be total. That's the way it is. That's the way it has to be. So how do we sort out the rights and wrongs of this? Well, I thought it was interesting that I saw, I think it might have been in the Daily Mail in the U.K., which is a pretty mainstream newspaper in the UK, they actually ran what struck me as a pretty good article on the subject. That is to say that said things about the 10th Amendment that were actually true. They actually told real history. It, 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 some of it read like an article I would have written. So this is what it takes. With a pandemic, this is what it takes for them finally to say maybe there's something to the 10th Amendment. Now, the last time I looked at the numbers, it's been a while, it was somewhere between 80 and 85% of my listeners are based in the United States. But that's still a substantial minority of folks who are in other countries. And I don't want to assume that everybody knows what the 10th Amendment is. And even some Americans, I'm sure, don't know what it is. So just as a review, the 10th Amendment says that the federal government enjoys powers that are delegated to it by the states, but that the states and the people retain all powers not delegated. So this is in line with what we know about the nature of the union, that, of course, the states preceded the federal government. They created the federal government in the same way that the man and woman precede the marriage, right? There's a, there are two individuals before there is the marriage, and the likewise, there are uh, individual states before there can be a union of states. And so, obviously, that resulting union can't be the source of its own powers. Only the architects of that union that preceded its existence can have had the powers to begin with, and then they delegate those powers that they think it would be in the interest of everyone to have delegated to the federal government, and they retain the remainder for themselves. So 
Trump is taking a position that actually recalls the position of Andrew Jackson. And by the way, it's a position that by and large has been cheered by everyone for at least the past hundred years, where the president implicitly claims a kind of plenary authority. I mean, not obviously we don't say that the president can set the sales tax in your state, but very few people have really complained about executive power per se over the past hundred years. Oh, they complain when their friends aren't exercising that power. They complain when the other party is exercising that power, but they don't complain about that power per se. So when Arthur Schlesinger Jr. warned about, he was the, the historian and presidential advisor, warned about the imperial presidency, well, he was worried about Richard Nixon, but he didn't care about Kennedy or Johnson or, you know, so it's, very, very rarely on principle that anybody is seriously concerned about the power of the president. And this is one of the reasons, of course, that neither party really wants to go after the opposition party on the conduct of foreign policy. That is to say, neither party wants to say, hey, this president of the opposing party shouldn't have sent troops into such and such country because they know full well when their person is in power, he's going to want to send troops to some other country. So they both have an interest in not bringing it up just letting it sit there. And that's what makes this so interesting, that finally there's something the president does that causes people to say, in principle, the president just shouldn't do that, and the states have certain powers under the 10th Amendment. Now, bear in mind, you talk about the 10th Amendment at any time, and it is automatically assumed you're evil, you're a racist, maybe you want slavery. I mean, you know, nice charitable interpretations of your beliefs like that. But of course, they can say it anytime they want to and it doesn't matter because there's an exception for them. So what we were told not 10 minutes ago was a sure sign of support for slavery is suddenly in the hands of these governors supposed to be an instrument of great liberation. Now, the 10th Amendment Center, whose founder and executive director, Michael Bolden, I've had on the show numerous times, really has shown that the 10th Amendment has the potential to be used in a wide variety of ways for the liberties of the people across the political spectrum. And that is to say, involving issues from Obamacare and guns all the way to hemp and surveillance and all kinds of other issues that are important to people across the spectrum. But that's not generally allowed in our discourse. In fact, Michael Bolden is demonized in the press and by the Southern Poverty Law Center. And you read what they write about him and you just laugh out loud because you know him and he's like the nicest, sweetest, semi-hippie, sandals and bead-wearing guy you've ever met. And then you read this demonizing report about him. You think, good, good grief. Imagine if we lived in a normal society where they would write demonizing reports like that about the political class who deserves them and normal people like Bolden would be held up as heroes. Um, people who fight against government surveillance and all the rest of it. Anyway, so I'm sorry I got a little bit off track. My point is Andrew Jackson was probably the first president, This, so we're talking 1828 to 1836, to articulate the idea of the president as being the unique spokesman of the entire American people taken in the aggregate. That was how he thought of himself. Now, Andrew Jackson did have some small government ideas, it's true. But in terms of the way he looked at the role of the president, it was 
it was expansive in the sense that he thought the president, because he was elected by the country at large, had a unique voice that was given to him by people who voted in the country at large. Whereas somebody who was a U.S. senator or a member of the House of Representatives, well, those people got votes from just one state. So they certainly could not claim to be the spokesman of the American people, but he could make that claim. And at that time, it was the now reviled John C. Calhoun who said, this is outrageous. There is no representative of the American people because for one thing, in our system, there is no such thing as the American people. There are the peoples of Massachusetts, South Carolina, Vermont, Virginia, and so on. We have those distinct peoples, but we have no single American people in the aggregate because we've never collapsed the various societies that comprise the United States into a single undifferentiated mass. And so Calhoun spoke up against it. Now, obviously, I know we're not allowed to like Calhoun. I understand that. I'll, I'll put on the show notes page the episode I did with Brian McClanahan on what, we're, what we should think about John C. Calhoun. So I'm going to write this down as a note to myself. It's interesting to note, by the way, just in passing, what John F. Kennedy said about John C. Calhoun. No one would be able to get away with this today. This is John F. Kennedy, like Mr. Mainstream. He said this, Senator John C. Calhoun of South Carolina, who served in the Senate 1832 to 43, 1845 to 50, forceful logician of state sovereignty, masterful defender of the rights of a political minority against the dangers of an unchecked majority, his profoundly penetrating and original understanding of the social bases of government has significantly influenced American political theory and practice. Sincerely devoted to the public good as he saw it, the ultimate tragedy of his final cause neither detracts from the greatness of his leadership nor tarnishes his efforts to avert bloodshed. Outspoken yet respected, intellectual yet beloved, his leadership on every major issue in that critical era of transition significantly shaped the role of the Senate and the destiny of the nation. Well, how about that? We're not supposed to probably quote that, but there it is for you. All right, so let's go through I actually want to go through this article. I'll link to this article too at tomwoods.com slash 1633. If I said 1632, it's because my my middle-aged brain is acting up on me. I mean 1633. That's the episode number for today. So let's start with Andrew Cuomo, who gave his response to what Trump said about presidential authority. Um, Cuomo said, we don't have a king in this country. It's the colonies that seeded, and this is funny that the, the British newspaper spells seeded, S-E-E-D-E-D, when of course he means seeded, C-E-D-E-D, but anyway, that's why you have all woods here. It's the colonies that seeded certain responsibility to a federal government. All other power remains with the states. It's just astonishing to me. Isn't that funny to imagine him saying that? Isn't that crazy? You're not allowed to say those things, and here he is just saying them. And they go on to quote the 10th Amendment. We've already talked about the 10th Amendment. And then continuing with Cuomo, this is Cuomo speaking, then he winds up saying, I have total authority, which is not true. It's not legal. It's a total abrogation of the Constitution. The 10th Amendment specifically says powers to the states. Alexander Hamilton, all the founding fathers, talked about the power of the states and how repugnant it would be for a federal head to say that they have eminent authority. All right, well, that's pretty good for an Andrew Cuomo. I mean, I 
It's a little strange to cite Alexander Hamilton of all people, but we'll give him this. And then we've had Gavin Newsom in California likewise assert the authority of the government of California, which he referred to as a nation state, interestingly enough. And when you consider the size of California, it easily could be. It'd be one of the biggest economies in the, in the world. So I want to do a little bit of digging here, and I'll do that in just a minute. And first, I want to tell you something that to me is pretty important, and I think you'll think so too. And that has to do with reading. I actually had somebody post on Facebook the other day that I'm making him go broke with all the books he's dying to buy because he hears the authors on my show. Not to mention, where's he going to find the time to read all these? And the answer is the amazing Blinkist app. It works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. It takes the key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. I like Blinkist because I feel like in less than 15 minutes, I can pretty much absorb an entire book. There are plenty of titles in the Blinkist catalog that would be of interest to Tom Woodshow listeners, including 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson, who's been a guest on the Tom Woodshow twice, Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman, the old classic, as well as Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, whom I hope to have on the show one of these days. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com woods, try it free for seven days, and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com woods to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com woods. All right, now getting back to this, The argument that's being made by the governors is that the states have retained sweeping police powers dealing with health and safety, and that the federal government does not possess such a police power. So, in other words, if the states want to, let's say, establish lockdown rules and procedures, then they have the power to do that because they exercise these police powers, and the federal government can't override those because it was never delegated any such police power itself, and it was not delegated the power to override the police powers of the states. Uh, These police powers are the reserved rights or or reserved powers of the states under the 10th Amendment is the argument. Now, I'm willing to accept that. I think that is correct, and I think there's some case law on this, particularly on the question of quarantines. And in fact, it's interesting to read John Marshall who was Chief Justice of the U.S. from 1801 to 1835, and who was not really a friend of the states. Uh, Over and over and over again, his decisions were in favor of the federal government or some expansive reading of the Constitution that gave the federal government, let's say, more power than people thought it would have at the time of, of the ratification of the Constitution. So in Gibbons versus Ogden, quarantine laws were mentioned as an example uh, where Uh, Marshall says they form a portion of that immense mass of legislation which embraces everything within the territory of a state not surrendered to the general government. Now, it's interesting that the one time you're allowed to mention the 10th Amendment, apparently, is in defense of the powers of the states to do draconian things. Now, you may think, some of you, that in a case like this, you have to let the states do these things because the alternative is unthinkable. But we all agree these are draconian steps. 
And we also can agree that this is the only time you've ever heard the Tenth Amendment be mentioned, uh, even even just referred to by Andrew Cuomo or anyone like him or people who cheer him or would support him. So the only time they want to assert the powers of the states is not to be able to resist something the federal government is doing, uh, but to be able to do their own tyrannical things. Then they want the federal government to stay out. That's what the Tenth Amendment is for. Whereas the Tenth Amendment center has been about preventing the federal government from stopping what individuals in the states want to do, stopping the federal government from interfering with the, the living of people's lives. That's what the Tenth Amendment center has tried to do, stop the federal government from saying, you can't ingest this, you can't decide whether or not a particular medical treatment might be best for you if it hasn't been evaluated by the FDA, even though you're dying. You know, in other words, these kinds of restrictions on people's behavior that the federal government imposes are the kinds of things the Tenth Amendment Center has wanted the states to help liberate people from. But the one time we hear the Tenth Amendment favorably referred to in the media and among the political classes, uh, certainly of the Democratic Party, it's for the opposite reason. It's we want to impose more measures on you. We want to take more liberties away from you. And we don't want the federal government interfering with that. So it's the opposite. Uh, that's, that's what they're using it for, is, the, is just the opposite. Now, also, I was surprised to read something in the uh, Daily Mail article that we've talked about in this program, and I think we talked about it with Sheriff Richard Mack about the anti-commandeering doctrine. I might have also talked about this with Kevin Gutzman. But the ruling in Prince versus United States, Prince, P-R-I-N-T-Z, in 1997 had to do with whether sheriffs could be forced to conduct background checks. And Justice Scalia wrote, the federal government may neither issue directives requiring the states to address particular problems, nor command the state's officers or those of their political subdivisions to administer or enforce a federal regulatory program. And he went on to add, such commands are fundamentally incompatible with our constitutional system of dual sovereignty. And then Justice Alito, in another case, Murphy versus NCAA, which had to do with sports betting in New Jersey in defiance of a federal law, wrote this. The anti-commandeering doctrine may sound arcane, but it is simply the expression of a fundamental structural decision incorporated into the Constitution, i.e. the decision to withhold from Congress the power to issue orders directly to the states. Conspicuously absent from the list of powers given to Congress is the power to issue direct orders to the governments of the states. The anti-commandeering doctrine simply represents the recognition of this limit on congressional authority. Now, on this, on the constitutional point, I think the governors are correct that this is not Trump's decision to make. Now, I think he has since partly walked it back, not really, not in principle, but partly walked it back by saying that he's authorizing the governors to do what they think is best for their states. Okay, well, in practice, that's the same thing as just not intervening and not claiming you have the right to intervene and just letting them do that in the first place. And I have to say, I was very surprised that he took this position. I wasn't surprised that he would take the position that the president has a lot of authority because that's the position every president has taken in my lifetime. But what really surprised me was that he's been, he's really in a very, very difficult position here. Um, and I don't just mean because he's Trump. Any president right now would be in an extremely unenviable spot 
Because what in heaven's name are they supposed to do if they don't allow the country to return to some form of normal operation? Then you're going to destroy people's livelihoods. You're going to get the the, the country into hopeless levels of debt. There'll be you'll hit a point of no return that will be extremely destructive and painful for an enormous number of people. But if he does say, okay, everybody go back to work, and let's say the numbers do spike upward again, then he gets blamed for all those deaths. I don't understand why from the beginning he didn't want to, in effect, wash his hands of this and say, well, this is up to the governors under our constitutional system. This is up to the governors. Why would he not have wanted to do that from the start? That I don't get. Now, on the other hand, we've got some commentary from a website that I consult pretty regularly, and that's targetliberty.com, run by Robert Wenzel, whom I've had as a guest here. And he was saying, in effect, that yes, it's true, Trump is wrong on the constitutional question, but I still support him because I favor liberty more than I favor the Constitution. And I think what the states are doing is so outrageous that I don't care about the constitutional niceties. If Trump wants to force them to open their states, then doggone it, I'll take that. And I can hear the force of that argument. I can. I think that probably backfires in one way or another. Uh, and also, I think it would be interesting to let the, let the states go at their various paces and see what indeed does happen in the states that relax these restrictions. Because it, it's certainly possible that, that those states will have a result that's not nearly as terrifying as what we've been told, as indeed the whole thing hasn't been as terrifying as, as we've been told. And that might make other states more uh, willing to do it. I mean, let's, you know, why don't you let some start first and see what the results are? But as more of them open up, it's going to be very, very difficult as the weeks and months go by for other states not to follow suit. Because eventually what has to happen is uh, business firms who will, you know, I think some of them will are likely to conclude that this is overblown, that there are reasonable precautions we can take to help the most vulnerable people. But obviously destroying what people have built their whole lives is not, can't possibly be a long-term solution are going to start asking themselves, do I want to do business in this state anymore? When I open a new location, maybe I'll open it in one of these states where the governors were the most reasonable and where they have a political history of being the most reasonable. Because if they keep hearing, well, you know, we may open and close, open and close, open and close for the next 18 months until some promised vaccine is available, that's not going to sit well with a lot of people in business. They may say, I think I'd like to go to a state where I can just keep operating. And we'll take every precaution we can, but I want to keep operating. So it seems like they can't stay closed for an inordinate amount of time. So who knows exactly what will develop out of this? But the long and the short of this constitutional question is that certainly Calhoun was right in his understanding of the nature of the union. And I've talked about that on the show too. In fact, I'll link to a really early episode that I did. I think it might even be episode 51, but I'll have to go back and look where I talked about secession. But in order to get to the topic of secession, I had to walk through the nature of the union, the relationship between the states and the federal government. And there I elaborate on this point that I was just making here about Calhoun basically being correct and Andrew Jackson being wrong. And by the same token, Trump is wrong on this particular point. And the, the governors are correct about the 10th Amendment. Uh, 
with the, about their states reserving these police powers under the 10th Amendment. There's, I don't think there's any debate about this. So then the question just becomes a strategic one for libertarians. Um, do you think in the long run it's best at least to try the, your best to give lip service to the Constitution or do you figure the Constitution is so far gone at this point from our national life anyway that it's just a sucker's game to try to abide by it and you should just try to squeeze liberty out of any nook and cranny you possibly can, which would be the Robert Wenzel approach. Well, I leave that up to you. I'm not going to tell you what to think on that. I can make a case for both sides of that. But that's the, that's the debatable question. It's not debatable who's right on the 10th Amendment. The, the states and the governors are correct on that. But whether that matters to you, well, that's up to your own value judgment. So I will leave you there to uh, ponder that. And meanwhile, remind you that at tomwoods.com slash 1633, I've got a link to my episode on Calhoun that I did with Brian McClanahan, the episode on secession I just mentioned. And I will also link to this article from the UK that I've used as a starting point for the discussion. So thanks very much for listening, everybody. See you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.